through uh, Linda and I going through this process known as uh, child rearing and having three children. And uh, so you haven't got the rearing part right, you know. And uh, one of the things that's interesting is that they have some unique observations of life. And from time to time, I get an opportunity to share those things with you. But I'm kind of collecting in my, in my head um, kind of a, a top five list or a top ten. I'm not sure how long the list is going to get. But um, there are several things that have happened in the course of our dealing with our children that uh, have shown me that kids have a unique observation of life. They see things a little bit different than we do. And a few, few of them that I've mentioned before, but I, I was going through thinking about again, was the time that uh, we were driving back from Palm Springs, and we're in the middle of just a, a terrible windstorm out in the desert, and there are tractor trailers that were getting tipped over on the freeway. And um, if you've ever gone on that stretch of freeway on the 10 freeway from, say, Palm Desert up through Banning, it can get really nasty there as far as the wind is concerned. And uh, we were driving down the freeway, and there was tractor trailers overturning. Everyone was pulling off the side of the road. Our car was kind of going, giving it one of these. And Ryan was looking around, and uh, he said, Dad, well, you know what? If it's so dangerous, why don't they just shut those fans off? <laughs> and, um, you know, things that you don't think about until they're pointed out in that type of a manner. And the same kid came up with a classic. We were in San Diego for the conference in January, and we were listening to the radio, and they gave its call signal to the radio station. It said, da 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 uh, San Diego, it's uh, 1045. And he just got this look on his face, and I saw it in the rearview mirror, and he goes, Dad, how'd they know we were in San Diego this weekend? <laughs> you know, the kid has some observations that you just, you know, you just stop and kind of go, you know, where's he come up with this stuff? Probably one of the greatest classics, we were, in, uh, we were in Disney World in August, Epcot Center, August, the Disney World. Picture yourself for a moment, 95 degrees, 95% humidity. We're standing in a line with a lot of white-looking folks from the East Coast. And, uh, and it is nasty, man. They got some outfits on that are just really interesting. And so, you know, and, and Ryan's standing in line, and just out of the clear blue, he goes, Dad, I smell sweat. Now, we, we, had, uh, we, we had been smelling the same thing, but, you know, it took something like that just to point out the obvious. You know, kids just have that way of observing things that you kind of miss. And uh, when he was real little, he came up with one where he was doing, you know, like the, those, those books and, that you know, you follow the dots and you, you do that kind of stuff. And he was just getting into coloring and things of that nature. And we were walking down the street one day and, and, uh, and uh, somebody was walking a Dalmatian. And... Uh, Hey, there's a dot-to-dot dog. I mean, in live and living color, a dot-to-dot dog. Well, you know, they, they see things that we don't see, and, and I appreciate having them around just for those particular reasons, if, if nothing else. But, uh, you know, what we need to start looking at is, you know, and, and as ridiculous as it is, see, God's got an observation point of life that's entirely different than our mindset. See, we look at what we think is the obvious, and when a, when a child points out something that's totally unique and a different perspective, one that we miss because we're used to thinking a certain way, it reminds me that God is constantly saying to me, Chuck, look, you keep looking at life from the obvious perspective, and I want you to start taking a look at life as I see it. And so as we go through this, there was a first grade class that had taken a tour of a hospital. And in this particular tour, the nurse that took him through the tour, at the end of the tour, gave him an opportunity to ask questions. 
And when you give first graders an opportunity to ask questions, they're going to ask questions. So as soon as she said, is there any questions, a hand immediately went up. And the little boy that asked the question, he said, let me ask you this. He goes, how come all these people are always washing their hands at work here? And the nurse thought about it for a second, and she had a great answer. She said, you know why? They're always washing their hands for two reasons. Number one, the people that work here wash their hands because they love health. The second reason that they wash their hands is because they hate germs. They love health, and they hate germs. And I thought that was kind of interesting because, you know, oftentimes in life, love-hate relationships go hand in hand. Love health, hate germs. I love my wife and I love my, my children. But I'll tell you what, I hate anything that would do them harm. Anything that would hurt them in any way. I love them and I hate anything that would cause any harm at all in their life. Love-hate relationships go hand in hand. Psalm 97.10 says this, that we are to love the Lord and yet hate evil. Love the Lord and hate evil. There's no middle ground there. There's no compromise. It's either you're going to do one or you're going to do the other. And what we're going to see as we go through this section of Scripture is that what God is saying constantly is that, look, if you say that you love me, then you must live this type of life because there's no middle ground. You cannot love me and love sin. You cannot be in the middle. There's no compromise position for a believer. You love one and hate the other. You may say you love God, but if you love sin, you can't love God because the two are mutually exclusive of one another. So he goes through and he lays it out. And in Romans 12, 9, it says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Hate evil, love goodness. And all throughout Scripture, it goes that way. If you've got your Bibles, take it and turn to 1 John chapter 2. Because in 1 John chapter 2, what John is going to do, he's going to give us a look at something that is a parallel thought with everything that he's been trying to get across to us so far. In 1 John chapter 2, so far we've seen, he said, that, hey, look, you know what? As believers, we need to walk in the light. We need to live a life that as God exposes areas of our life that don't line up with the way that he says that we should live, as he exposes that area, he says, hey, look, you need a change in that area, then you need a change in that area. So he says to walk in the light. He also says that if you're not walking in the light, then you're to confess your sin. Agree with God. Okay, right, you got me. You hit me with the spotlight. I saw what I'm doing is wrong, and now I'm going to confess it. I'm going to repent of it. I'm going to turn from it, and I'm going to go another direction. So he's taking these thoughts, and it's a progressive manner. He says, look, as, as the light exposes the areas of your life that aren't pleasing to God, then you need to repent of those areas, confess your sin, agree with God, turn from it, and then you need to move on. And in doing so, you'll then begin to keep his commandments, which he told us to do. If you love God, an evidence of a person who has come to know Christ is that they'll live a life of obedience. So when you're, when you're confronted with his commandments, you're going to obey his commandments. And in doing so, you'll then walk or live your life as Jesus walked. That was the illustration or what I was trying to get across last week in the situation that I was placed in, that I needed to live out that situation as Jesus would have. It's a very simple thing, but it's one that's very profound in that if we ask ourselves that question, what would Jesus do? We need to look at the scripture and find out if he was in a similar situation and how did he handle it. And that's the way that we're to live it. So he says, now live or walk as Jesus did. Then he teaches us that we should love one another. An effect that we'll have as Christians is that we will have love for one another that is as unique 
to our relationship in Christ. We have a common bond in Jesus Christ that, tra- that, that transcends any other relationship that you'll ever have. We can pick up with other Christians immediately and have a common bond and a common spirit or a kindred spirit or a united purpose or mind in that we are all in agreement that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we live under his lordship and that we want to be obedient. And so we're to encourage one another to do that. So there is a love that God says is good, and that is that we love one another, and the love is so that we can encourage one another to to continue to walk as Jesus walked, to continue to live a life of obedience. If one of us violates something and the other knows, we should encourage each other to turn to Scripture and find out what we should be doing, and that's the way it's supposed to work. But now there's a love that he says that we should hate, and it's a love that God hates. And love-hate relationships are found all throughout Scripture and all throughout life. So it's not that uncommon for God to say, look, there is a love that God hates. And so John's saying this is what he wants to get across in this particular section of Scripture. In fact, it's probably, if anything, would look at it as a warning passage to all Christians. This passage of Scripture is a warning to all of us who have come to know Christ and claim that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. He says, I want you to listen up and listen careful because i got to warn you about something that's a major problem in the growth of a life of a Christian. So he goes through it and we pick it up at verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He says, Do not love the world, nor things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, And the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. There's basically two things that he's going to outline in this particular passage, this warning passage. And the first thing that we're going to see is that there is a main purpose that he has in writing to them. There's a main purpose that he has in writing to them. And we're going to take a little bit of time and go through this to have a better understanding. But what he's revealing is that, you know, there are differences in spiritual maturity among believers. There are differences in spiritual maturity among believers. And he outlines that very clearly in this particular section of Scripture because we can see it. First, he says, I write to you, dear children. Actually, it should be little children. He's talking about babies, new Christians. He says, I write to the new Christians. He says, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, those who are a little more mature in their relationship, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. So he goes through and he outlines or breaks out or reveals that there are different levels of spiritual growth. One of the most important things that we can learn before we leave here is that, guess what? Not all of us are on the same plane spiritually how critical that is to understand. Because that way we do not impose where we are upon others who are still in a growth process. 
one of the most devastating things that you can do to a Christian, especially a new Christian, is to have them somehow or another feel like they should be playing on your level of ball. One of the things that I can destroy, and there's another manager story for you, but one of the quickest things that I could do is destroy any kid who doesn't have the background or the level of growth on a ball team and expect him to play like somebody who has five or six years of experience, expect him to be put into certain positions that the team depends on performance and have them destroyed by a ground ball hit to him with a game-winning situation at hand and have it go through their legs because I know they can't catch it. It'll destroy that kid's life. I have had more debates with parents who think they know better than me, which is a natural, but I can understand that. But, I, but, but in, the area, in this particular area, I've had more debates over the years with parents who believe their child should play a certain position, and they are the last people who have any ounce of objectivity left in their life because, after all, it's their kid. And it could be a genetic thing that we're starting to discuss here, you know what I mean? So you never want to bring it up. But I say, hey, take a look in the mirror. What do you expect? But you, know, you, never, you never have that. You think those things, but you never have that outward discussion. But the point is that, you know, I, and, and, and just as an illustration, three years ago I had, a, I had a mother and dad who just hammered me week after week after week after week that their son should be a third baseman. Their son could be a third base, but <laughs> their son could not be a third baseman. The kid had one, no, that's not brutal. The kid had one year experience. I mean, there's no way that he could be a third baseman. But they hammered me week after week after week after week. And it got on my nerves. Pardon me? Good. Because what I'm learning is that I draft kids whose parents are cool. We got a real unique draft system. We have like, okay, do you know their parents? Yeah, they're really nice. Okay, let's pick the kid. I don't even care anymore what kind of player it is. It's like I got to deal with the parents more than the kids sometimes. And then we pick one who has a big yard and a swimming pool for the after the season party. They got a big yard? Yeah, they got a pool too. All right, they're in. Hey, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, right? But so anyway, so this, this, this particular couple thought their child should be a third baseman. So after a while, I finally gave up because I got tired of it. I, you know, I continually told him, hey, the kid can't catch a ground ball. I don't want to put him in a situation where it's gonna, he's going to get hurt. I don't want to put him in a situation where he's going to hurt the team. I don't want to put him in that situation at all because it's not going to be good for him. Well, you don't know what you're talking about. Fine, okay, great. Hey, play third base. So he played third base. Three balls hit to him. One almost killed him, took his head off. It was a line drive. The next two went right through his legs. The poor kid was a nervous wreck. You know, he, he was looking for Valium. You know, he was like, he was like, and, and, and you know what's sad? That kid's never played baseball since that season. And you know what? And what hurts me is that I gave in to them to, to show them that I knew what I was talking about, and I shouldn't have done that. Should have just stuck to my principles. Kids never played baseball since, and never will because of that experience. What's the point? The point is that all of us are at different levels of spiritual growth. The first thing that he has, he says is, look, I write to you little children. I write to you infants. Those of you who have just put your faith and trust in Christ that don't know anything, but you're just glad to be here. He said, I want to talk to you first. What is a constant thing that little children need? Reassurance. Every time they make a mistake, what do they need to hear? I still love you. It's okay. Don't worry about it. And do you see what he says? 
He says, I'm writing to you babies in Christ, you little, you little Christians. I'm writing to you infants. Because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. He's writing to infant Christians and saying, Listen, I want you to understand something. Every time you blow it, every time you make a mistake, every time you fall into sin again, I want you to understand that your sins have been forgiven on account of His sake, not on your performance. So look, you, you, you don't come to Christ because of your performance. You put your faith and trust in Christ because of His performance on the cross. So what he's saying to little Christians is, look, you can't blow your relationship with God. You can't uh, throw it out the window because you fall back into sin again. He said, I want you to understand you are forgiven because of Jesus, not because of what you've done. So if you weren't forgiven because of what you've done, you're not going to be unforgiven because of something that you do. So I want you to keep it in mind that children need constant reassurance that their sins are forgiven because of who Jesus is. And so what we need to do as more mature Christians, and I use that term lightly because a more mature Christian would realize that a new Christian is going to poop their diaper. And so we've gone through that and discussed it, but the reality of it is they're going to make mistakes. So as a mature believer, guess what we need to do to new Christians? We need to constantly reassure them that, guess what? Don't worry about when you make a mistake. God, you know, God's teaching you. You're growing. You're learning. You're going to make mistakes. But the good news is that that mistake isn't going to cut off your relationship with God because he loved you. Jesus died for you. And your sins are forgiven on account of Christ's sake, not because of anything you did or didn't do or will do in the future. So I got good news for you. You can relax and just grow up as a child of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Wouldn't you have liked when you were first a Christian to have people in your life who recognized that was true, that there are different levels of spiritual growth and could encourage you in your walk with Christ through your mistakes, through the problems that you have, and say, don't worry about it. You're forgiven for Christ's sake, not because of who you are and anything that you do. That's a wonderful thing to be able to think about it. Little children need constant reassurance. And so he also goes on, and, as he, and you see in this particular phrase, he says that I write to you, dear children. He's saying there's two things that he wants us to understand. Number one is that the sin question has been settled by the work of Christ. And that should solve any problem that any new Christian has as far as guilt in his or her life. The second thing is that he also evident, there's an evidence of a relationship to God by personal knowledge. He says that, and you have known him. He says, I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. You have come into an intimate relationship with God through Christ. You don't know of Him, but you know Him because you have a relationship with Him. And that should solve the problem of worth. And so as we go through this, he breaks it all out. He also goes through and says, I write to you young men. So there's growth. There's babies. We progress. There's growth. We're in our youth. And he says, I write to you who are now beyond being a baby, but you're growing. You're not quite at the father level yet of maturity, but you're in the process of growing up. You still have a lot of excitement to you. You still have a lot of uh, um, maybe uh, unrestrained uh, emotion. You know, you get that zeal. Isn't that, I mean, it's amazing. And what's good about it is, you know, you get the older people who lose that zeal but have the maturity. And then you get the young people who have that zeal that just need to have it channeled in the right direction. And so what we should be doing as young men or young women who have an excitement for Christ is being able to encourage those who have known the Lord a lot longer are walking with them but aren't really doing anything to start doing something with their faith. 
to be challenged by what they see happening. So there's levels of growth that are shown here. And, uh, so, and then he talks about fathers, and he says that, you know, I write to you fathers because you've known him who was from the beginning. He's saying that, you know what, when we finally reach a spiritual maturity, what we're doing is we're constantly walking in obedience. Constantly walking in obedience. We're not struggling with the, the question of whether to obey or not to obey. So he goes through and he explains these different levels of growth. Now, I want to just kind of stop for a minute before we get into the main thrust of what he wants to say and just share something with you that I'm real concerned about and see if maybe you're not concerned yourself. How many of you have uh, small children in your life? Small children, whether they're your own or friends. Uh, how about grandchildren? I mean, you've got small children in your life somewhere along the line, right? I don't care if you're a teacher. You've got students that you teach. I mean, you're, you're actively involved with small children. Is that the majority of people? Okay, well, for the rest of you who don't, you still have to listen. Okay, so here's, here's the way this works. What does a small child want more than anything in life? What? Attention. Okay, a small child wants attention. What else does he want or she want? Security, love, reassurance. Toys. Yeah, part of it. Food. Wants his own way. I mean, what else? To be, to be big. Isn't that true? Every small child I know wants to be big. Okay, now some of you, this is going to be a stretch, but remember when you were young. Just for a moment. Oh, yeah, the ones booing are the oldest. Remember when you were young. What did you want more than anything else in life? To be older. Ah, ha, ha. <laughs> That's what you get. But uh, isn't that true? All right, you take, a, you take a child who is, like la- last night we had some friends over. They got an eight-month-old little girl, okay? It's been a long time since we had an eight-month-old baby at our house. Our youngest child is now nine. A- or a friend at our house. <laughs> That's good. Every now and then. Took eight months, but he came off with one at the right time. But that's what I love about persistence, persistence. But, um, okay, anyway, <laughs> this eight-month-old eight baby. Now, this eight-month-old girl is not content with crawling anymore. You know what she wants to do? She wants to walk. Can you believe that? This eight-month-old child wants to walk. And she's not content with a bottle anymore. You know what this child wants? Like Food. I mean, and, and, and she doesn't know, she's not smart enough that, that that stuff in the little jars and stuff isn't really food. <laughs> she thinks it is because she's not sucking it out of a bottle. But she wants food. You see how this is going? You know what she's going to want to do pretty soon? She's going to want to run. She's not just going to be satisfied with walking. She's going to want to run. She's going to want to be chased through the house. And then she's going to want to go outside and she's going to want to play on the swing set. And then she's going to want to run in the yard. She's going to throw a ball. She's going to kick a ball. She wants to do all kinds of stuff. And then this little girl's going to want to ride a tricycle or a skateboard or a bicycle. And there's a progression that's taking place. This small child is not content to continue to remain a small child. This child wants to grow up. Every kid I know who is in school, my children, can't wait. My kids that are in elementary school want to be in junior high school. My kids that are in junior high school want to be in high school. My daughter who's in high school can't wait till she gets to college. And then when she's in college, she can't wait till she gets out of college. And neither will I be able to wait for that. (laughs) 
But there is a progression that takes place in the lives of children. You've been there. You couldn't wait to grow up. When I played sports, if I was on a single-A team, I wanted to be on a double-A team. And a double-A team, I wanted to be on a triple-A team. And a triple-A team, I wanted to be in the majors. And when I played football, if I was on a freshman team, I wanted to play for the junior varsity. And when I was on the junior varsity, I wanted to play for the varsity. And then I wanted to start. And that's just life. That's the way that it goes. There is a progression in physical life, and we are not content to remain children any longer. Problem. Then why are we content spiritually to remain as children? No other area of life are you content to remain a child than why are you so in the area of your spiritual life? I don't know, any child would say, but I'm just a baby and I want to stay this way. I like milk, don't want food. Thank you very much. Like the second grade, don't want to go to third. Want to stay here forever. I don't know any child that I've ever met that has ever said that. And yet, for some reason, I meet Christian after Christian after Christian who writes it off and says, I like being in the second grade. I don't want to grow up. Why? Why not? It's important that we realize that there are different levels of spiritual growth, but it's also important to realize that there is no child who wants to remain a child all of his or her life. In the physical world, we all want to grow up. We all want to be big kids. We all want to get to be adults. We want to play the adult game. But spiritually, we want to remain a kid so we can just make excuses for our behavior. There's a real problem. And I believe the key to understanding the problem is found right here in this particular section. And I want to go through with you and I want to challenge you to consider it because some of you are in old frames, but you're still sucking your thumb. And it's time we all grow up a little bit. Don't be content on being a small child in your spiritual life. So he goes through it and he says this. What's the key from growth? What is the key from going from a little child to a young man? He says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. What hinders our growth spiritually? What hinders our growth spiritually? Pardon me? Sin does. We know that. Sin will keep you from growing up. There's no question about that. What else? We have a very real problem. I think a lot of times we don't recognize what this real problem is. Because I was struggling with this. Why in the world don't people want to grow up spiritually? There's a price to pay, but let me just make it as basic as possible. Let's assume for a moment that you have a mother who has a little child. And this little child wants to start to crawl, but the mother says, no, you can't crawl, don't crawl. The little child wants to stand up because now it's crawling, and the mother says, no, you don't, you, I don't want you standing up because you're going to fall. I know what happens. As soon as the children start standing up, then they try to walk. And as soon as they try to walk, then they start banging their head off of coffee tables. Next thing you know, we're going to have to go to the hospital, and you're going to have to get stitches, and then who knows what's going to happen after that. So I'd rather have you not walk because if you walk, you may fall. You may get hurt, and I don't want you getting hurt because I love you. That's what we say. But if you have a little child who has that kind of atmosphere, that little child is going to be stifled in his or her growth. You can't walk. You can't run. You can't play. Don't go outside. Don't get on your bike. Don't get on your skateboard. You're going to get hurt. Don't do that. You see how that works? If we had people in our life who were like that, then we would be stifled and we would not begin to grow. But what a difference it is when you have other people who come into the life and there may be a mother who's like that and all of a sudden the the husband comes into the father or the friends and they say, hey, let the kid grow up. Let her go out and try it. Let her walk so she falls. Big deal. We all fell. We all stumbled. It's not that big a deal. 
But do you realize what the Bible teaches that we have a person in our life who wants nothing more than to keep us from growing spiritually? And the Bible says that he is called the evil one, that he is our enemy, that he is our adversary, that he's looking for those to whom he can devour. Do you realize that a very critical thing is that we've got a personality in our midst called Satan who has demons that operate, spirits, evil spirits that operate with him that want to keep us from growing, that want to keep us from crawling, that want to keep us from walking, want to keep us from running, that don't want us to grow in our spiritual life. And he says, I write to you young men, why? Because you've overcome the evil one. You recognize the obstacle that he places in your life and you've overcome him. We've got a very real problem and it's one that just dawned on me as I watched this little girl try to walk around the house. And that is we all encouraged her. She started to walk. We started to clap. I don't know why I did it. But we just do these kind of things. You potty train them, you clap. Hey, let me see that. We do that. Why? I don't know. It's just because we want to encourage them, right? They're growing up. Yeah, way to go. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> and you do that kind of stuff. But we encourage them to grow. And you know the only way that we're going to grow... He says here, I write to you young men because you're strong and the word of God lives in you. What's the trick? How are you going to overcome the obstacle in your life? How? Let me tell you something. This is basic, but we miss it so often. How does a kid grow up physically? It eats. It doesn't like milk anymore. It wants solid food. My kids are past the kids' menu stage. Man, it's amazing how much more expensive it gets, huh? But they're past the kids' menu stage. My son's 11 years old. Dad, I want a big burger. And he does, and he eats it. And he's growing like a horse, as they say. But you know what's amazing? There seems to be a correlation here. If he eats physical food, he grows physically. Hmm. Ooh, jot that down, huh? worth the price of admission but if he eats physical food he grows physically you know what the bible says if we eat spiritual food we'll grow spiritually and if some of us were eating as much as this as the other stuff that we're eating we wouldn't have to worry about our cholesterol level we wouldn't have to worry about what we look like in the mirror and who joined us we will not have to worry about any of these things Who's this person in the mirror? You know what I'm saying? Hey, 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 hey. Stop and think about this for a second. The Word of God is a food. Jesus said, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. As he answered the temptations that were thrown before him from the evil one the adversary, the one that was keeping him from doing what he came to do. You know what he said? Hey, right here, the Word of God, the Word of God. You want to know why you haven't grown spiritually? Let's just stop and think. How many of you would go for a week without thinking, I think I'll have lunch today? How many of you go for, huh, any time at all? How many of you have gone a week without eating physical food? Okay, there's a couple for specific reasons, right? Okay, two out of 300 and something. Gee, why is that? 
Now, how many of you have gone for a week without ever picking this up? Huh? Be honest. Yeah, a lot more, right? And then we sit and we go, I wonder why I'm not growing spiritually. I just don't figure it out. This is a very real problem. And it answers the question of why some of us are still sucking our thumb. You're not going to grow up spiritually until you start spending some time in the Word of God. He said they overcame the evil one because the Word of God abided in them. They had the strength. They had the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6.17. They had the Word of God in their life to fight the evil one. They had the Word of God in their life so that they would know how Jesus walked. They had the word of God in their life so that when I was put in the situation I was in last week, the first thing God brought back to my, my recall was, hey, remember this passage? Remember what Jesus did? The word of God, the Holy Spirit had something to work with in my life to take it and say, hey, here's what you need to do. But he doesn't work in a vacuum. He doesn't say, oh, here's some passages for you now that you're in this situation. Because you've been too lazy to study, I think I'll just give you all the information. He doesn't do that. He takes what you have and he uses it in your life. And yet we'll go for weeks and weeks and months at a time. We'll never pick this up. We'll never eat one thing of God's word. We'll never ingest any of it. And then we wonder why we're spiritually babies and still sucking our thumbs. I don't care if you leave with anything but this. I want you, every time you pick up food to stick in your mouth, I want you to feel guilty that you're not spending an equal amount of time putting this book in front of your face. That's all. That's as simple as that. Every time you eat, if it's breakfast, you know what? Maybe you ought to open this up right next to your cereal or your eggs or whatever. If it's lunch and you have the opportunity, do the same thing. If it's dinner, hey, why not gather around the Word of God? Why not eat and read at the same time? And if you can't do it for whatever reason, because you're a business lunch or whatever it is, then why don't you just keep track of how long you sat there and ate food and then say, Lord, I owe you an hour and a half tonight. (laughs) Oh, gee, that's really pushing it. That's pretty radical. You must be one of those Jesus freaks. But let me ask you something. How do you expect to grow up? How do you expect to grow up? And frankly, as you begin to mature it gets harder and harder to put up with people who don't spend any time wanting to grow spiritually. Because you know what wears you out? they got the same stinking problems all the time. All the time. Every time they come to you, guess what? It's the same problem. Well, why is it the same problem? Because they're not doing anything about it. Why aren't they doing anything about it? Because they're not spending any time in the Word of God and God can't direct their lives and say, stop doing that and start doing this. So every time you turn to Him, you say, this is what the Bible says. Here, I'll give you the passages again. I'll give you the verses. Spend some time studying it. It's not me who's saying it. God says it. And God will use His Word and it won't come back empty. And if you just start to ingest this, God will have something to work with and He'll use it in your life. Oh, I don't want to do that. I'd rather listen to some airheads on on TV or I'd rather pick up a psychology book. I'd rather do something like that and it has nothing to do with what God says because I don't want to hear what God has to say because I already know what he's going to say. Had that conversation with a guy this week and he said, hey, what am I supposed to do in this situation? He said, here's what the Bible says. Bang, 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 bang. He said, this is what you have to do. And uh, later I overheard him talking to another guy. He said, well, how'd how'd your conversation go? He goes, well, I didn't like what he had to say. That's fine. 
And I didn't like saying it. You know why? Because I was all emotional with them too. I wanted to be subjective. You're right. You got a bad deal. Here's what I do. Here's what I'm feeling right now. Isn't that what you're feeling? Sure it is. Why don't you do that? Well, because that's not what the Bible says, so it's really a stupid thing to do and it's going to cause more problems for you. So I'd recommend you don't do that. Let's just trust God and see what happens here if you just follow what his plan is. But I don't like that. Well, who cares whether you like it? It works. Do you want it to work or do you want to feel good for a moment and then get yourself in all kind of more trouble? So we go through it. So, I, I mean, that, that's the challenge. That's something I want you to consider. And um, what we need to take a look at is that's the main purpose that he has in this particular section of writing to him. He wants us to understand that, guess what? We're not all on the same plane spiritually. But what I want to tell you is the reason we're not all on the same plane spiritually is because some of us haven't eaten any spiritual food to grow up. And so we need to start doing that. We need to spend some time, some time in the Word of God. As much time as you eat, you should spend as much time in the Word of God. But he also says that, you know what, there's a problem that we face in our growth. It's not just so much a matter of, well, this is, uh, we're not spending enough time in the Word, although that will have a direct correlation to what the problem is. But in a more practical sense, he identifies that there's another problem. And in 1 John chapter 2, he lays it out. And he says very simply this, that we are not to love the world. The problem that we have is we're not to love the world. And he goes through it and explains it. He says, don't love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man or the lust of the flesh, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Here's a warning. If you want to grow up spiritually, if you want to mature as a Christian, then he's saying that there's some things that we need to consider. We need to consider. And there's four facts from this particular section that we need to consider. Just four simple things, but as you, as you make application in your life, there's going to be a profound change. You're going to start growing up. You're going to stop sucking your thumb, and you're going to start moving on in your walk with Christ. And so he lays out the first one, and that is, number one, that there's a basic requirement. And guess what the requirement is for growing up? The first thing that he says, guess what? Stop loving the world. If you want to grow up, you need to stop loving this world. Stop loving it. He says, do not love the world nor things in the world. So as he goes through it, he's telling us, don't love the world. The implication is that it is our natural desire to love the world. It comes naturally. Loving this world is easy to do. It's a natural thing. So it assumes that loving the world is something that's natural for us to do. But he's saying, don't love the world, but you need to love the Lord and let the Lord control your life instead of letting the world control your life. And so as we go down through this, we need to ask a question. Well, we can all agree on this. We're told to stop loving the world. Now the problem is, what is the world? What am I supposed to stop loving? This is the love that God hates. Stop loving the world. And so we'll go down through it and take a look at it. And uh, the first thing is, if you've got your Bibles, look at uh, these. There, there's five things that are mentioned, all of them in 1 John, as far as what the world is considered to be. 1 John chapter, th- um, chapter 3, look at verse 1. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. 
For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Speaking of the world of unbelievers, a group of people who don't believe that, God, that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, a group of people who don't believe that Jesus Christ is God who died on a cross, paid the price, or the penalty of sin by shedding his blood, and rose again from the dead, proving that he is who he claimed to be. There's a group of people that you and I will come in contact with on a regular basis who simply do not believe that. And so he goes down through it and he says in John, in verse 13, he says the same thing. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world then hates you. What's he talking about? Don't be amazed when non-Christians hate you. I mean, we've all been there, we've all experienced it, and yet all of us at times are amazed, why don't people like me? Don't be amazed when non-Christians don't like you. They're going to hate you because they hated Jesus. And Jesus is the one who we're following. They put him to death. We're just lucky they're not killing us too. So don't be amazed by this. And he goes on in chapter 4 and verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Non-Christians listen to non-Christians. It's as simple as that. Unbelievers. Now the problem is, is this the world that we're to hate? Well, the obvious answer is no. We're to love unbelievers. We're to be a testimony in the lives of unbelievers. We're to be with unbelievers. We're to spend time with unbelievers because God loves unbelievers. So this can't be what he's talking about. This is not the world that God hates. God loves unbelievers. Well, there's a second world, and that is all of mankind. And you can go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 2. But then we've got the same problem. Not only does God love unbelievers but he loves all of mankind whom he created so we've got a similar situation that we've got to face and that is that god loves people christians should love people so it can't be that well then what is this world well in in uh, chapter 3 verse 17 it's it's used to to designate things it says but whoever has the world's goods or stuff and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So whoever has the world's goods, the, the stuff that the world has to offer, material possessions. So he's saying that, you know, although we're not to love things, we're not to love things, and we're not to love the things that other people have. That's covetousness. That, that, that's envy. And he says, don't do that. We're not to love material things. We're not to love the things that others have, but it's not in the context of what's being discussed. Whoever has the world's goods or stuff, don't love that either. So he goes on and he, bre- he breaks out, and here's planet Earth. Chapter 4, verse 9, the same thing. He says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world. God sent His Son into the world, into onto this planet, to walk on the planet Earth. God did that. Jesus walked on this Earth. So are we to hate the Earth? Well, no. We're to enjoy what God has created. So the last thing is, and a very specific thing that we're to hate, is that this world that we live in has a philosophy or a mindset that we're to hate. Chapter 5. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So what he's saying specifically to hate, as a Christian, you and I must hate the mindset or the philosophy of this world system. Now let me explain to you how that works. Have you ever heard somebody on TV say, and now from the world of sports? Well, is that a different planet? To some of you gals it is, right? Is that a different continent? Is it a different planet? No, it's a particular system 
or from the world of finance, the world of economics, the world of sports, the world of whatever. See, the world that's being designated there is a specific group of people who are actively involved in a specific function for a specific purpose. And so it becomes the world of sports. It's its own little, it's its own little entity in and of itself. And it's got its own little language and its jargon per, per sport. And if you're not into it, you don't even understand what's being discussed. And so it's a philosophy or a mindset that goes along with it. And so what he's saying is that this world that we live in has its own philosophies and its own mindset and its own language and its own activities and its own purpose and its own function. And the players and the people that participate in it are going in a certain direction. And he's saying as a Christian, don't love this philosophy of life. Don't love this mindset. Don't love this activity. Don't love the way that this thing is going. Don't love that at all. That we're to hate that. And if you've ever been in constant opposition against it, you can recognize it very clearly. We had a Bible study. Um, I'll close on this, but we had a Bible study uh, this past week or during minicamp at Rams Park. And um, there's a whole different philosophy. There's a whole different mindset that the world operates under. And um, it was really fascinating to me because um, they had they had this they have a bulletin board. Don't do it. My wife's great. She's going. Don't do this. Don't do this. Now I got to. <laughs> but but they they had this they had this bulletin board. In the bulletin board, the rules in the locker room are in this bulletin board that you have to leave whatever you put up on the bulletin board for 24 hours. That's just their rule. I don't know. But anyway, so they had pictures of players. They had a little cutouts, and they had Coach Robinson at the top, and they had that across the top of his name. They had the Buffet King, and then um, and then they had pictures of each player that was there, and they had you know somebody was chicken, and somebody was this, and somebody was turkey, and so they had all these pictures, and they were all up there. And then they, and then they had this gal who didn't have a, a top on, and they had the breast entree um, that was in on this particular bulletin board thing. It's really funny. You gotta, but, so they had that all there. And, uh, and then right next to it, right next to it, they had Bible study, 2 o'clock, Players Lounge. Wait a minute. And, you know, I walked by there, and it captured exactly what I'm trying to point out. There's two different philosophies of life. There's two different mindsets. One is the world's and the world system. And the other is God's. And vividly was portrayed on a bulletin board in the locker room. And in half the locker room, there was cussing and swearing and dirty jokes and stories about whatever and everything that you can imagine. And then the other side of the locker room was a player's lounge where there was a dozen of us having a Bible study. The guys sat in the locker room. They got undressed. They stood up. And they walked across this world philosophy and they came in to see what God had to say about life. See, there's two philosophies. There's two mindsets. There's the world's and there's God's. And that bulletin board summarized to me exactly what the problem is in this life that we live in. You're either going to do things God's way or you're going to do things the world's way. You're going to buy into that philosophy or you're going to buy into God's philosophy. And that's the only two choices that there are according to the word of God fascinating isn't it and you can feel it when you walk through it you can feel it when you're there